So hello and welcome to Sailfaster, the podcast that gives you expert insights on racing and winning. And today we are joined by a couple of real experts, uh, Jason Curry of Quantum Sales and Mike Beasley of Beasley Marine. Thanks, boys, for joining. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Pete. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Thank you, Pete. I know you guys are incredibly busy, so I'm, I feel very privileged to have you, have you on the show. Um, so I'm going to start with, you're both a long way from New Zealand. How, how did you both come to, to be here, to be in Annapolis? Uh, Jason, what, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Pete. Um, so I started sailmaking in 1992, and when I finished my apprenticeship around 95, 96, um, I got the opportunity to come over to, to work for Quantum, and Quantum was basically just starting up. It was originally a Sobstad sailmaking loft here in Annapolis, but I, but I got a letter in the mail from one of the guys that I knew that worked here, and he basically said to me, you know, hey, would you be interested in coming over? You know, Quantum would be uh, more than happy to sponsor you out and get a green card. And, you know, this is back in the day where there was no email, internet, really, or anything like that. So the letter in the mail, I responded to right away and jumped at the opportunity. And, you know, the process took about two years to get the green card. And I think I was on the plane around 1997 and um, landed here in Annapolis. Um, had a th- uh, Quantum put me on a three-year contract um, based on the amount of level of effort and costs that were associated with getting the green card. Um, so yeah, three year contract and 26 years later, I'm still here, Pete. <laughs> so they got you locked in for that green card early on, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't leave New Zealand until I knew that I had the green card. Uh, okay. Yeah. And, and how do how do you start sailing? I, mean, I, I saw a note that you, uh, you started at three years old with your dad, right? Yeah. Yeah. My dad got me into sailing, put me on his little 17 foot trailer sailor at three years old. And you know, at that age, I really didn't know what was going on. And I think I fell asleep down below most of the time um, but yeah no he he got me into it and I did a heap of sailing with him throughout the years and and from probably the age of 11 or 10 years old got into the optimist and and worked my way up through the dinghy scene. I did a lot of sailing in New Zealand before I moved over here I was 22 years old when I got to Annapolis so mm. you know I'd already done about 12 or 13 years of sailing solidly in New Zealand through the dinghies but once I got to Annapolis that's kind of where the bigger boat stuff took off for me. And, um, you know, I think I would say I've learnt a large percentage of my sailing skills have come from sailing in the Annapolis area. Um, you know, there's a lot of science to, to, the, to sailing and rig setups, and, and I'd learnt most of that stuff once I got here. But, you know, sailing side of things, you know, started with the Mum 30s, Far 40s, J111s, did a lot of sailing with Mike actually. Uh, on various boats with and against um, but yeah i mean throughout the 26 years or so that i've been here it's, it's been quite a successful time yeah it sounds like it so the exactly what you said about sort of the science of it the technical aspects of it that's i'd love to uh you know get into that in, in a few minutes but mike how about how about you how did you start how did and how did you get here oh well yeah it's uh not unlike uh jason's story but um i as as a as a teenager a, a kiwi sort of upbringing is to do your uh, overseas experience and uh, I uh, I did a race um, on, a, on an IMS 40 footer uh, from New Zealand to Japan. We stopped in uh, Fiji and Guam. This was in 1991 I think and uh, anyway uh, at that point I um, was uh, at uh, ended up 
from going from Japan, got on an American boat, went through Alaska and then down to San Fran and ended up in uh, Fort Lauderdale from 93 to 95. And um, I basically loved America. I loved the, the sailing. I was doing some a lot of sailing on a Hobie 33 down there. Uh, I met Mike Topper at North Sales um, there. He was fortunate enough to give me a bunch of gigs and then uh, went back to New Zealand um, at that point and um, was building uh, uh, Grant Dalton's uh, Volvo 60s. And wow. uh, we, we finished those. And uh, then in 96, just as we're halfway through those, one of the guys comes up to me and says, do you want to go to Norway and finish, uh, help build Kavana. I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, and, and as a Kiwi kid, it's, I think it's more so in New Zealand than anywhere that we, we just part of our upbringing is just to do the great escape and just see part of the world, you know? And, um, anyway, uh, halfway through the build program, uh, Canute fired the two boat builders and said, uh, do you want to come around the world and be our technical shore manager? And, uh, I was like, <laughs> hell yeah and uh here's a free phone and, and a bag of gear and away we went and uh as we went around the world we obviously uh, came to annapolis uh well it was originally baltimore and then annapolis and uh we met a whole bunch of um expat kiwis you know english um australians south africans um and i just fell in love with the place and uh and and just for me um from I could see the economies of scale in the U.S. both when I was living in Fort Lauderdale and in, um, in or when I visited Annapolis, compared to New Zealand, where it's a little different now, but there might have been 10, 40 footers, and those people were cons- uh, like I just thought of those as the most rich people in the entire world, you know. And uh, and have you have you had? a 40 foot power boat, then that was another level again, you know, and uh, then you come over here and you've got those same 40 footers being lifted on the, on the back of 120 foot power boats as their tender. You know? <laughs> and so the, and, and that's kind of why I ended up here was just from me being a boat builder uh, slash, you know, at the time uh, it wasn't, certainly wasn't a professional sailor, but um, the uh, was given so many opportunities over here that I, I couldn't re- refuse the opportunity to live here and just build build uh beasley marine from you know established beasley marine in 2006 and never look back yeah you've both had pretty dreadful experiences by the, by the sound of it uh, i was so envious of you guys who've had this lifelong association with sailing i was always a corporate drone who uh, got into it late and i was always pretty envious but the new zealand thing is um is quite interesting i, I just recall that i sat next to uh, we were sponsoring companies working for were sponsoring the America's Cup in San Francisco uh, probably about 10 years ago now. And um, I, I sat next to at lunch with uh, um, the parents of the New Zealand team. And, um, you know, they were up against uh, Larry Ellison uh, at that time. And I remember her, her saying to me, if we don't win it this time, we have no chance of winning it again because the resources in New Zealand are just not, are just not there compared with a a Larry Ellison program. So you, you you talked about scale, and I think that's uh, that's true. Though of course New Zealand does uh, fabulously uh, in sailing, uh, whether it's yeah, a sail yeah. GP or America's Cup, it's uh, they're very much a player. Yeah, and it, it brings me back to a point. I remember growing up, we there was you know, and, and Jason touched on a little bit with um, the 
sort of the technical aspect of it. We 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 grew up with Dacron sales that were <laughs> with Threadbare, and but you just go out and race, and everyone had it was pretty. You might get one new sale every three years or something, and so the difference of racing was was quite um, quite different growing up. It's 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 mm. changed a lot now, but um, getting getting back to the hard school we that's that's what we did growing up you know and um yeah. and, and i think it it puts you in good stead rather than just being i don't want to say spoon-fed but you know just being your whole sailing career being being dictated to you a little bit yeah yeah no i, I get that okay uh, let, uh, let's um i'd love to talk to you about race preparation you're you're both vastly experienced racing sailors so when you, I'm, I'm intrigued about when you think about race preparation. And, and Jason, let's kick off with you. Do you do you go through the same thinking process every time you come to a regatta, or does it depend largely on the type of boat, where you're sailing, all that sort of thing? And then I'm going to add a part B, which is there anything you think you do differently from others in sail preparation? Yeah, I think you know the preparation. You know, we don't just rock up to a regatta and and start preparing to sail or race. It's all Basically, you know, you start the preparation months before, you know, you should be talking about the spring and summer sailing right now, for example, you know, with Charleston Race Week, that's a good example, you know, that's in April, so it's about three or four months away. So, you know, any event that you do, you put a calendar together and and you start outlining what your plans are and your goals are. Um, For me, you know, I try to stick to the basics, you know, making sure the boat, the equipment is to level to the level that will enable us to reach the goals that were set for the event. Everyone has different goals. Every owner has a different goal. You know, some owners want to win. Some don't care so much about winning. Would rather have a few beers in the bar at night. You know, go have a good time. Everyone is different, and it's important to outline or find out what those goals are prior to the event. Um, you know, also making sure we've done our homework. Before we even get to the venue, you know, San Francisco is a very current-driven area with a lot of wind, whereas Annapolis is is predominantly a light air area. So the venue plays a big part in your preparation as well. And then when it comes to the, you know, the the day of, is there a is there a routine that you go through? There, yeah, the day off. Now you're uh, really fine tuning everything and and drilling down into the final forecasting for the day. You know, you know what your currents are going to be, but you get the latest forecasts, and and then you have a team meeting either before or after breakfast or during, um, and and discuss what the goals are for the day, discuss the forecast, and and go for it. It's all about getting the team into the mindset as well. Uh, Mike, how about you? Um, is it the same or, you know, just given your word, you focus on uh, yeah, more on whole preparation? Yeah, no, I, I think it's a, all, all the points that, that Jason made, but sort of we, we turn back the clock just, just the same way. Um, you know, for, for me, I, I was always sort of impressed by the likes when I, I got on Yamaha for the first time and then um, at the Kingwood Cup and then uh, started doing the Far 40 events over here. And I was always, always felt um, that uh, the boat that, that was, I'm just trying to think of the right word here, but um, intimidated. When you look at like Plenty, Barking Mad, and, you know, we were on, we were on some very good boats and, but, those guys just had an edge element of 
perfection. And, mm. you know, um, Terry Hutchin was obviously involved in those programs. And um, the uh, I think the intimidation is something that I try and bring to the table with just if, if, if it's the bottom is good, you know, the top sides are good, the ropes are good, the rigging's good. You know, I used to walk down the dock and you're competing against a guy with frayed lines. Um, he's got a plastic winch handle that's half broken. You know, you already know that you're going to have a good chance of, of, of beating that guy. It's not always the case. But um, so, you know, I, I think the, there was a guy that I saw with in New Zealand. Uh, his name was Simon Gundry, who was one of Peter Blake's protégés. But um, he, we were doing a, a coastal classic, which is a, a, a uh, 126 mile sprint up the coast of New Zealand, up out of Auckland into the Bay of Islands, and uh, he um, he's like, "You got your five P's," and I was like, "Of course, it's you know, prior preparation prevents poor performance." And uh, I was doing the bow for Murray Ross, another another good sailor, and um, you know, we'd put a put a spinnaker up, and he'd go, what, "What's the next sail?" I was like, "What do you mean? We just put this one up." He's like, <laughs> "Well, you know, what is the next sail?" And it taught me a lot about um both beforehand before you even leave the dock um the the preparation that the bowman should be doing you know and the level that you get to with with sailing at at the upper echelon is that there's a lot of mistakes that that if you don't do those five p's then you halfway through the day you break a jib sheet have we got a jib sheet no oh i didn't bring one you know and so there's always that element, you know, um, that I think that, that boat prep is, is, you know, so much involved. The good guys don't break stuff. The good guys have the right sails. You know, they've, they've got their bottoms done, um, you know, and they've gone through the checklist 30 times, a VHF. They're going to be a VHF, and, and I've got my own checklist that I do as well. It's in, I always put it in front of the race folder, and it's just lunches, water, VHF charge, Velocitech charged, um, just 20 bullet points that safety gear is another one, you know? And, um, so the, the big thing is that when you, when you hit the race line, you've got the weather, as Jason said, the tide for, for any venue. And, and I think one thing that you can't get complacent about is every day, every minute, every hour is different on the racetrack. So, you know, just leaving the dock in the morning, going, oh, the breeze is going to go right, you know, and D Smith's very good at that with like, he will have five different models and he'd say, and so by lunchtime, he might say, look, the, the GFS model is, is actually the best model at the moment. It's saying that it's not going to go right. It's going to hang, you know, at two, three, zero or whatever, you know? And uh, so um, there's always continual updates that I think is very important too during the course of any um, event and, um, you know, going in as prepared as possible. And uh, so, and, Jason's hit the nail on the head with, you know, if you're thinking about an event, it's if you're showing up and thinking that, well, we should look at it, get a tide book or something, it's already too late. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I think I, just to add to that too, Pete, you know, every single person on the boat, on the team, is responsible for their department. You know, so like Mike mentioned, you know, the tactician might be in, uh, in charge of making sure the VHF's up to charge, the Velocitech's got batteries, while the trimmers are, uh, you know, the trimmers are responsible to making sure the sails are on the boat, battens attention correctly. Every morning, every person should set about their um, department once they hit the boat and, 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 and put it all into place. What I heard you say 
uh, earlier, Mike, was that thought about uh, um, thinking about what could go wrong. Oh, without a doubt. And I, I think the biggest thing is what I've been taught by good guys is you need to be proactive. Nine times out of ten, if you're reactive, then you, you've already lost the, the situation or, or you're behind the eight ball. And, yeah. uh, you know, if you're proactive, particularly, I guess, you know, it, it does. Uh, I'm, I'm getting more into offshore racing a little bit, but um, certainly for around here, it does apply. Um, you know, there's a, there's a thunderstorm rolling through and, you know, your phone has that many powerful apps on it now to, to give you updates. And it's just about someone's job to maybe keep on top of that. But, you know, being being proactive in, in any part of the sport is going to, I think it's going to put you certainly in that top 25% very quickly. Yeah, I got it. So so there's a bit of a follow-up because we're sort of getting into a question I wanted to ask really. Uh, and that, uh, Jason, that, you know, when you step onto a winning winning boat or a boat that's very likely to win, um, what are those differences versus a boat that's mid-fleet? Can you, can you tell straight away? Can you tell how the crew operate, how they talk? I'm just, just curious about if there's, a, if there's a difference there that you immediately see. Um, well, it's hard to step onto a winning boat because it hasn't won yet. But, <laughs> but <laughs> <Or> potential. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like Mike said, you know, you can, it's all about the preparation. But when you walk down the boat, you can see the way some boats are prepared and some aren't. You know, most of the time, the teams that win are the teams that are already at the dock before anyone else getting the boat ready. But, you know, having the right people, you know, and it's not just the team sailing the boat, but it's also the, the boat captains that are preparing the boats. They're just as important as anyone else, as are, you know, some teams have chefs and cooks that are preparing the nutrition for the team. That's so important as well. I mean, I've, I've been on... I've been involved with teams where we have not eaten a proper breakfast and it really does affect you throughout the day. So there's, there's lots of gears towards winning and, and it starts with the shore crew all the way through to the, the team sailing the boat. Yeah, it's interesting. We had Laurie Stout, uh, who's a you know very accomplished local sailor on earlier. And I asked her the, the, the question about preparation. If I recall, the first thing she said was nutrition, making sure the people, you know, before you know, getting the sails trimmed and the, uh, and the boat tuned, it was about making sure that there was water and food and nutrition for the crew, which I thought was really interesting. She she mentioned that a couple of times. And uh, perhaps um, the sort of club racing, buoy racers, we don't think about that. But I definitely made a note to myself to um, oh, improve I, the standard I, 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 of snacks. I, 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 <laughs> it's critical. It, yeah, it's critical. It controls your brain. And oh. you know, obviously we're using our brain to get the boat around the race course. So it's very, very important. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm not going to name the boat or the person, but Jason and I both saw with him. We did a a Port Huron Mac where we had a hand desalinator, which created two drops of water with two guys trying to hand pump. Luckily, <laughs> we were on the Great Lakes. Hey, Mike, uh, what we've got you, um, I think about you as being somebody who prepared the, the bottom of my J105 and uh, uh, you gave us a, a Grand Prix bottom. And uh, despite my incompetent helming, when we are one-on-one we tend to slide past other boats sure, uh, sure. which is uh, been working for us so is that is is that something that you particularly focus on or is it just um for you just part of the mix no 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 I, I well there's just you know from a scientific standpoint there's 784 times more friction in water than what there is in air so hmm. you know um and I, i've spoken to this uh it was actually a doctor um that i spoke to about it and he said there's there's a 
a huge amount of energy required for if that, let's just say a straight line is 30 feet on your boat. Now that molecule of water has got to uh, travel 32 feet, then there's a huge amount of energy absorbed in those sails or however the propulsion method is to make that, you know, eliminate that, that drag. So, um, you know, I think a race bottom uh, is, is so critical um, in, and even wax on the top sides. And, and guys, uh, I was speaking to a, another 105 the other day and he had like 10 different vinyl bootstripes. And I said, look, th- those are in the water just as much as the keel. You know, he's like, sure, I never thought about that, you know, because he just saw the boat out of the water. And, you know, there's there's a lot of things that are sort of crossover words here uh, for the sail making industry. There's end plate effect where the rudder's got to be tied up against the hull. Um, you know, again, looking at, um, you know, foil packages on an aeroplane, you know, your trailing edges have got to be tight or down to zero. Um, I don't know how close you'll ever get to an America's Cup sort of boat, but they're razor sharp. They can't have the turbulence coming off the back. Um, so, and through hulls, there's, there's those, there's the zincs, you know, and, and again, halfway through the season, um, you know, have your diver replace the zinc, you know, on, on a 105. You guys are you guys are looking for just fractions of an inch. And we had, we had um, just on a sort of a side note, but we had Chris Dixon uh, come and talk to us when we are doing the Royal New Zealand Yacht squadron youth scheme and um he'd just won his third world title and someone said how dicko how, how did you win the third world title he said well we're in the same boats and all we've done is we focus on and this is for you pete or as a helmsman i want to go over each wave if i can be one millimeter better than the guy next to me and i do a thousand waves in a beat then I'm a meter ahead of that guy at the top mark, which could break an overlap. So, you know, it's all those little things combined. And again, you know, um, Jason sails, you know, there's the end plate effect on the, on the, against the deck, there's the entry, there's the exit, there's the batten pockets, there's all those things combined, you know, all make that, just that ounce of difference. And then suddenly, you know, you're at the front of the, the pack and you go, it doesn't. It doesn't just necessarily happen. It's. It's. Gets back to that five P's of of everyone doing their part, and and it's a combined effort with the crew as well. You know, everyone like just feeling the the heel of the boat. Is it a ten degree? You know, what what angle do you like in the in the heel angle? Bible does it say nine degrees and nine knots of wind, or does it say less than that? You know, and so, and that that's something that, you know, as a helmsman and a tactician shouldn't be doing that. That should be maybe the pit guy looking at the heel angle on the velocity or the, the instruments. So, you know, again, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's a global picture you've got to be looking at rather than just one particular area, I believe. Yeah. Um, hey, something I want to ask you is um, somebody said to me recently that the, um, hey, you, have, you know, you have that wind shadow on sails, of course. Um, uh, but also the hull itself creates a lot of disturbance in the water that maybe, um, you know, we're, we're focused on staying out of somebody's, uh, somebody's wind shadow or trying to avoid being gassed. Yeah. But equally important is about understanding that, you, you know, J105 or any, any, any keelboat is pushing a lot of water out the way and that's yeah. creating turbulence in the water. You, you don't necessarily see or feel. I just, I just wonder if either of you have, uh, um, think about that much. A good, 
example there, Peters, you know, back in the day when both Mike and I were sailing far 40s, mostly against each other, you know, we were getting 30 to 40 boats at events. And when you're around the top mark in those boats, you know, they don't take off. They're not really planing boats. They've just got big old symmetric masthead spinnakers. But more often than not, there's just a train of boats. And the last thing you wanted to be doing was sailing in the wake of the boat right in front of you. So, and those boats did get give off a, a quite a substantial amount of wake off each quarter stern so um yeah yeah you've got to get out of that wake and just sail either slightly to weather of it or slightly to lord of it but don't sail in it it's, yeah. it's quite slow yeah 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 uh, jason how, how do you squeeze extra speed out of a boat i'm sure there's you're going to tell me well there's a thousand ways pete but is there anything that you you um say you you know you're on a boat for the first time and your uh, your is there like a mental checklist you go through in terms of okay how do we get this boat to sail faster? Well, if, if it's the first time that I'm jumping on that boat, the first thing that I'm going to check is rig tune and me and and I've, I'm going to do some homework there, in that I'm going to print out the uh, the tuning guide for that particular boat and make sure that you know when we leave the dock that the rig is at the setting that we want it for the given wind speed. That's that's critical. Um, um, in terms of yep. there for a sec, Jace, we, yep. a, a good example, Pete, we did the Southern Bay race week last year and we left the dock. It was, I think the weekend they did the Annapolis to Newport race. It was uh, when that brick front was rolling through and we went out and we, we looked at the rig tune and we put 20 turns on the head stay for argument's sake. And, uh, we went upwind, and the day before, we put on 10 turns and tightened the caps, and we just thought with the rig further forward, take away uh, weather helm, and we thought it would be a better setup. And we we were getting to 6, let's call it 6.3 the previous day, and this particular day, we couldn't get to, we are just touching, getting to 6.2 easily, but we couldn't get to 6.3. So get, gathering data, I think, um, that rig tune and is, is absolutely key because... And feedback from the helmsman and the mainsail trimmer is, is day-to-day is critical because being able to repeat things and is absolutely, you know, oh, we won that race. Well, how did we win it, you know? And so having that information, and I know that I sailed with Roy Dixon uh, in New Zealand. He was um, Chris Dixon's father, and he's the first guy I've ever seen with a notebook. And um, mm-hmm. it was that sort of information for anyone and you look at you know Terry Hutchison or all, all, all those guys have always got wet notes just just collecting data you know and uh yeah it was, so, it's, just, it's repeatability yeah isn't yeah. it you know, like you know Pete the two the couple of Wednesday nights that I've done with you on your J105 I think the first question that I've asked you every time we've left the dock is where is the rig chain right now you know and um you know, like Mike said, you've got to be able to repeat it. And by doing that, you've got to measure your turnbuckles with calipers and have it written down into a into a boat tuning guide as well. Um, and so that when you get back to the dock, you can put it back to a base setting, knowing that it's ready to go for the next day or the next week's Wednesday night race. But in terms of squeezing extra speed out of the boat, you know, one of the biggest um, things that I'm a fan of is just overall crew weight kinetics. You know, if you're sailing with eight people, eight to ten people, well, really, honestly, it doesn't matter how many people, even if it's just two. If if the entire group is working their weight together, particularly on a downwind leg, 
where you're sailing VMG angles and working the weight with waves, that is that you're going to gain a, a good amount of speed and a good, good amount of distance on other boats by really, really working that true weight with waves. You know, every time you move the rudder, it's going to slow the boat, it's particularly on a J105 or a FAR40, because those rudders are huge. So every time they move, it's going to slow the boat. But downwind, you know, the, the group of guys on the rail should be on their feet, hunched down, and listening to the trimmer. And so if the trimmer has pressure in the kite, and he's telling the driver to bear away a little bit to soak with it, well, then the crew weight should be pushing their weight over the windward rail to really drive the boat down. And and so there'll be very little rudder movement once that's in play. And and the vice versa is if it goes light and the trimmer wants the, the driver to put the bow up, then the crew weight are leaning in almost to leeward, and that's going to turn the boat up naturally. Yeah. And just one, one other thing on that note, that- just because we sail in Annapolis, um, windage is, is something in light air. And um, as much as it's cruel for the crew, but um, I hate to say it, but, you know, in if it's five knots of wind, then half the crew should be downstairs sitting on top of the keel. And because the, the normal place where they're going to sit is in the slot. And that's just the worst thing when, you know, you've got, Jason's doing all this R&D, like clue patches and things like that, of how the airflow goes over that. And then someone's sitting there, then it's defeating the whole purpose of the, the, the flow of the sail. And because the wind or windage isn't something you can see, it has to be a big mental thing plugged into the crew that they're like everything they do, both kinetically and, and windage, is all helping boat speed, you know, and... Uh, it's a happier crew at the dock if they're sitting on the podium rather than DFL. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, uh, this is not this is not a popular call, though, is it? Right, Jason? Uh... <laughs> no, uh, you know, it, most of the time it's a team sport, you know, and the guys are more than happy to do it. I mean, I'll never forget the first time I learnt that weight down below was such a bit, such a fast move and light air, especially in choppy conditions. And I was actually doing a regatta with my father in New Zealand on a Ross 780, um, which was the Nationals. And when we put two or three guys down below and, and we won the race easily, we were faster than everyone else around us. Everyone else had people on deck and yeah, it's, it's a power play. Right. We're going to, we're going to try that. The, my crew will probably send me down. That's what I'm thinking. Hey, uh, <laughs> Jason, hey, if but if it's raining, Pete, they're more than happy to go down there. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, Jason, you talked about joining uh, London Calling on a Wednesday. You did it a couple of times, and I, I think we improved our position in the between the times that you uh, you went with us. But um, I learned something really um, interesting that's probably pretty obvious to most people out there. But to think about um, trimming the sails as a pair, that was quite a uh, inflection point for me on learning how to uh, how to sail a J105 relatively fast was to make those two flow together and not treat them as separate sails. So that was a, that was big learning for me. Yeah, you, you can, you're controlling the slot between the two sails essentially, Pete. And so you know if the, if the jib's too tight, then it's going to shut down the slot between the leech of the jib and the and the luff of the mainsail, and vice versa. You know if the mains too tight and the jib's too far out then the entry's too open and you're going to lack point so yeah the two sails are designed to work together yeah we we learned from you to uh you know have somebody um get the the trimmer to go back and occasionally and just make sure that the the leeches of both sails are in, in somewhat parallel um 
Okay, great. Hey, I'm interested in, um, you guys have sailed a ton of different boats. Is there, a, do either of you have a particular boat, a particular race platform that you absolutely love, you feel really comfortable with? There's, there's, there's all different shapes and sizes. And, uh, you know, I, I've sailed on Steve Fawcett's Maxi Catamaran and that, that thing's 125 feet long and, and done some St. Bart's buckets on big boats like that. And the loads are, scary and frightening but they're beautiful you know doing 12 knots upwind is powered by the wind the loads are through the roof but they're spectacular um you know at the other end of the scale there's i haven't done any skiff sailing but when i owned my gp26 i think that thing was it, it was so dynamic that um i was i was loved the fact that i could make a wholesale change and, and feel the difference and um you know, I'm sure people sailing 505s or those sort of things, you know, uh, definitely have, you know, that similar ability. But um, there's, I think for me, um, the SR26 was, sorry, the GP26 was was a huge fun boat because it was so dynamic. And then, but I've also just on a sort of just doing a circle back to that, that tuning thing a little bit too was something that Gavin Brady taught me was when we we're doing a lot of 52 sailing, don't dick around with quarter turns and that do wholesale changes so again like if you feel you might be able to handle more rake pete just just have a go one day you know there's, there's no harm in 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 experimenting a little bit you know what i mean and uh because the worst thing is you can just put it back to where it was you know but um the uh there's there's plenty of cool boats out there that you can do you know all that sort of stuff on as well jason what about what about you is there a is there a sort of a go-to boat for you that if you if you could you would um, you know, I mean, when I first got to the US, <clears throat> the Mum 30 was the boat that was just going off. You know, it was a fairly new design. I think it was new around 94 and 95. So the fleet here in Annapolis was pretty strong. You know, I think there was about eight boats sitting down at Jabin's. And, and I'd seen the prototype in New Zealand before I left. And I thought that was just the coolest looking boat. And to have ended up sailing on a bunch and winning a couple of North American championships with that Mum 30, it was just kind of a dream come true i mean it was bruce Farr hit the ball out of the park with that design it's such a cool boat you know today yeah it's outdated and there's new boats um you know the khaki 40 the 52s the cape 31 this they're, they're amazing boats and um very very um responsive to correct tune correct sailing correct uh you know kinetics with what we were talking about earlier yeah, the, the Cape Thirty One gets a lot of attention, doesn't it? I think it's quite fast growing, especially. Uh, I think especially in Europe, actually. Uh, well, your your neck of the woods, Pete, in England, in England. Yeah, they got th- they got thirty boats over there now, sitting in one spot. So, yeah, that is super. Do Jason, do you, do you have a favourite on this buoy now? And um, this is the leg that I know I can make up time on. It's my favourite leg. Just wonder if you, if there is, and and also obviously why. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think everyone's going to say downwind, uh, you know, because downwind sailing's easier and faster. But you know, not really a favourite. But I will say, I've probably got more favourite angles to sail. You know, reaching. You know, if you're doing an offshore or distance point-to-point race, we're always going to love the wind angles on the beam, putting reaching sails up, code zeros, and 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 staysails in between. You know, running two or three sails up on the bow. I mean, that's such a fast area for most boats. But, yeah, I mean, a downwind would always be my favourite, Pete, but 
I would always lean towards angles more than de- more than uh, legs. And if you're going downwind, do you, is there a do you have a sort of a stock strategy that you stick to, notwithstanding obviously tactics between different competing boats? But is there a do you, you always tend to? I always go high, going around the top mark to create clear air, jive and go. I'm just curious. You got to know. You got to know what the true wind direction is, Pete, based on the axes of the course. So. So as, you, as you're approaching the top mark, if the breeze is in a uh, right phase, you really should be jibe setting, you know. Um, same for if the breeze is in the left phase, you would never jibe away because you're going to be on the wrong, wrong, wrong jibe making it making your way downwind. So do your homework as you're approaching the top mark and the offset leg in terms of wind direction, and that's that should be your first strategy for the top end of the course. And you know if it's the final leg, final downwind with a you know finished downwind, then the bottom half is more geared towards positioning and boats that you need to beat, especially if it's coming down to the final race so i, I just echo what you said i know they say um you know take a note of which is the lifted tack as you and i i read that thing to myself i'm coming towards that windward mark i don't have time or room in my brain to think about that at the helm because you're you're trying to figure out how am i going to approach this this mark where's the three boat circle what are competitors doing is my team ready to get the spinnaker out all those things I, I just can't get my brain around. Also, let me contemplate right now, which is the best, uh, which is the, um, you know, the, the head attack down, uh, going downwind. So I'm sure for you, you pros, it's it's just part of the deal. But for, a, um, you know, a, an average club racer like me, it's uh, just another thing to... to hmm. But I think, I think, Pete, for you, you should be focusing on on driving. That should be, you know, you've got seven other people on the boat that, should that should be a responsibility that should be the pit guy or someone that for the majority of the leg upwind he's just looking because the all the sails are up so the pit guy should probably be a numbers guy you know what i mean and uh or it it, it can't be someone can't be the bowman um you know the main sheet trimmer should probably be quite influential on that on on your type of boat um because he's going to be looking he's going to be looking at the jib he's going to be looking at the instruments and the main and that's kind of something that you're just doing a full rotation the whole time so you know your focus if you're if you're taking away some of your focus of driving then you're down a tenth of a knot you know what i mean and uh so that's that's where your crew responsibility um as, as jason said earlier comes into into play and you know that 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 starts when you leave the dot or let's get out to the race course and just see what's trending with the breeze and just have a pencil in the pit somewhere where you can write on the true wind direction um, and what the trending is, particularly if you have oscillate, and this is all written down a thousand times before me, but, you know, um, if the breeze is oscillating, you know, if you're in a right-hand phase at the five-minute gun, is it going to go back left or is it going to go, is it going to hold, you know, and that's the sort of thing that you collect data long before you get... We've done so many regattas with owners and drivers who are completely focused on getting the boat around the course in terms of driving, and that's all they do. And so, yeah, they, they look around a little bit to kind of get an eye on the fleet and what's going on, but 95% of the time they're just looking at telltales and instruments in terms of boat speed and targets. And then by the time you finish and cross the line, a lot of the owners off sale with uh, asking, well, where are we and what happened? 
So, Mike, do you, do you have a favourite uh, leg of the course? Yeah, I I do. I I'm an absolute fan of just the Nam off uh, downwind, and uh, and the, the reason I say that is that it, it separates um, the men from the boys, and um, it it's so influential on how you sail the boat, bang off, crew weight, uh, your trimmers, uh, the drivers, and you can. You can make big gains upwind, but I think you can, you know, if you're on the step and you're rail riding, then, um, you know, your gains are equally, if not bigger. And uh, so that that's for me. And, and you know, when, when you're foresail reaching on, on these bigger boats now, the 45s and the 52s, um, it's pretty cool that you're going as fast a wind, if not faster in any sort of sea state. So, um, you know, that's sort of the, the multi-head racing is, is something that's come ahead about in the last sort of five years. And um, the more slots you have working for you, the, the faster the boat goes. So um, that's that's me personally. And if you've even even more so on that, if you've got a reef in and you're triple heading, it takes a lot of load off the helm. That's generally where you can broach. So um, not so much. Well, and, and on your boat, if you're doing a distance race where you've got tight angles, you should never be shy um, on putting a reef in um, if, if it comes to that wind strength because it takes a lot of load off the helm and rather than just having a flogging main, you can then pull the main in, the boat's balanced and it's phenomenal how much you know speed you, you'll gain. And the other thing that even Jason and I, when we were at the, uh, the J80 Worlds, um, we were sort of fluffing around. We hadn't sailed the boat much in breeze and we were sort of going dead downwind and we looked at the guys in the front and we had our jib rolled up and the guys in the front were, if you do 12 knots in a JD, it's a magic number. It's probably not far off probably what you are in, in your boat. But um, we put the bow up, rolled the jib back out and away we went, right, Jason? And uh, suddenly we're, we're, we're in the money and we're in the, in the top five of the fleet. And, uh, so that's, yeah. that's my particular angle. I, I just love being where it's absolutely... And hear it, <laughs> and, and that's what New Zealand was like, Pete. You know, growing up, we, yeah. we, we were never kept on shore. Whether you're sailing an optimist, a P class, or a 50 footer, there was very rarely a postponement or cancellation. I mean, we're sailing off the beach in P classes with you know three meter seas <laughs> so offshore, wow. Wow. You know, but that's how we learn, and and that kind of relates to what mike's saying is you know down heavy air downwind sailing is is a lot of fun particularly when you have a good group beside you who are getting the boat around the course with you mm. yeah and keeping yeah. the rig up right yeah i'd agree with that and and i think we we a, a cancellation i i hadn't heard of that until you know just in the last i don't know 15 years when we, when we grew up we'd be driving around the auckland waterfront it'd be It'd be sheep in the paddock everywhere. It was howling, and you'd just get on the boat. You put your wet weather gear on. You plug the number three in, and decide on the way out whether you put a reef in. And you put the 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 um and nothing. There was no symmetrical spinnakers back then. It was either the the A sorry the S two or the um the S three, and uh, away you went. And uh, it was for us sailing in that breeze was just normal. You didn't think anything of it, and uh, you know I think it's. It's an, and you're the same. God, look at the Solent. Look at you know. There's and, and I think it breeds a better better crew person because if you can sail a boat in that breeze, 
in 20 knots it's simplicity you know <laughs> and uh so um you know fortunately I, I was very fortunate to sail with the likes of earl williams and and joey allen who have done some round the world sailing team new zealand and those guys were just at home in that stuff you know and uh, so that they, they taught me a lot but um and I, I think it's important to go out in here if the race is cancelled go out in 20 knots and 25 knots because you'll be amazed at how much you learn just you know and you don't have to line up with anyone just feel the boat let let bring the lead aft you know um max outhaul you know max backstay see what the rig's setting up and and it'll it'll teach you a lot on the helm as well just and you know it's, it's about being proactive rather than reactive because everything turns to shit so quickly in the breeze. But if you're organized and, and, you know, say we get a windy, you know, Halle Hansen regatta in April uh, or Charleston can be pretty, pretty windy at times too. And if you're comfortable sailing in that stuff, I guarantee again, you'll be passing boats left, right and center. Hmm. Uh, hey, last question guys. Uh, I'll let you go. Um, is there a piece of advice that the sort of best piece of piece of advice that you've either received? The- you know, one big one is you got to set clear and realistic goals. Okay, so you know, based on how long you've sailed the boat, what regatta you're doing, you know, you're not going to go if you've just bought a boat and you're going to go say do the J105 North Americans. Well, you got to you got to set a realistic goal and keep it in perspective. You know, top ten, top fifteen, whatever, whatever it is. And then the other one, I. Her, one other good one was actually from Stu Bannatyne, another top Kiwi sailor. And it was when we were sailing a 52 together and he sent out a debrief and, and there was one line that's always stuck out to me. And, and he basically wrote, a team that has fun together will perform well together. And, and that team um, that we, we had back in that day, it was about 10 years ago, it was a really, really good team, and we did have a lot of fun together, both onshore and, and offshore. But, um, yeah, if you have a good group that gels together, you're more than likely going to perform and win together as well. Mike, how about you? Well, I think um, the best bit of advice I can give Jason is just come and sail with me more often so I can teach him a few <laughs> You know, the, uh, I think it's probably been his downfall all his life. But, uh, you know, there's... It's still plenty of time, Jace. You know, at the end I, of the day. I'm pretty sure we uh, we nailed our goal last year at the J uh, J80 Worlds. Yeah, of years top ago. ten. No, we 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 did we did we did very well there. So, yeah. Did you sail together? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 No, it was, what, it was how do you do? Uh, we got we got eighth um, out of fifty. Um, yeah. We we were lying second at one point in the regatta and had a little little DSQ incident that we won't discuss but anyway the um i'll put my hand up for it but anyways it was a little frustrating but uh, yeah no it was it was it was a great event and we certainly we jumped in the boat pretty green and uh to line up with the rest of the world was was, was a lot of fun and um we uh, but, but it's a good good example of realistic goal pete because i think you know out of the how many sailed with us five you know i think four of us had never sailed a no there's a, only four a, there's only there's only four of us Total of four, so three of us had never sailed a J eighty. Yeah, <laughs> ever. Yeah. <laughs> so but, I think we set a good goal and we nailed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was. You know, what, what was your goal then? Go on, tell me. Was, was it top, 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 top ten? I said, if we yeah. get top ten, I'll, I'll be stoked. You know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so after um, day after day one or day two, we were sitting in second. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so the uh, yeah we uh, but uh, no I I think I. 
I think the the, the biggest thing I, I and you know I've saw with with Rod and um, I've saw with with Rod on on good and bad days, and he is the happiest, and the crew is happiest when there's a good mood on the boat. And I think that starts off from just the banter in the morning on the dock, you know, and and the debrief, sorry, the briefing of the day can be talking about last night's activities, you know, and so I think it doesn't have to be all business. There's certainly, you know, and I, I grew up on a, um, there was three of us involved in the CSR 26 and it was the same guys sailing on it for probably 10 years and the fun that we had and the speed came naturally and, and to back Stu's comment up, you know, it's your relaxed group, if your tension and everyone, the, the tension's high and the mood's bad, generally your position is about the same. So, you know, a good, fun team is generally, I, I think. So um, Jason Curry of Quantum Sales and Mike Beasley of Beasley Marine, thank you so much for taking the time. That was fantastic, expert insights and stories, wonderful stuff. Really appreciate you taking the time to join Sailfaster this morning. Thanks, Pete. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. I concur. To hear more of our conversations about racing sailboats, make sure you subscribe to the Sailfaster series wherever you get your podcasts or go to sailfaster.net to sign up and learn more. Thanks for listening and see you on the water.